I want to begin by thanking those who have preached recently for Tom and James, Ben, Mike and Titus. It's really quite remarkable when you think about it that in the first nine Sundays of 2014, we've had six different individuals uh, preach here. Uh, Each one has reflected his own questions and struggles, and each one has taken a different approach in his preaching. I think we should be grateful to God that he's brought together a rather diverse congregation. In my preaching since coming back from the Philippines, I've been seeking to answer the question, how is the faith to be passed on to another generation, to the next generation? And to accomplish this, we've we've begun our study in Paul's first letter to Timothy. I've said this before, but I want to make it clear. I don't think Paul wrote this letter with the question of how do we pass the faith on to the next generation. Instead, he is instructing Timothy and those who are reading the letter over his shoulder, so to speak, how it is that God's people are supposed to behave, particularly in light of the problems that exist in the church in Ephesus, false teaching and wrong behavior. We should see this letter as corrective more than instructive. But obviously, when you are correcting someone or something, instruction may or must be a part of that process. But a correction implies or requires that something is already in place. There's something there that needs to be corrected. Instruction, oftentimes, there may not be anything there, and so you're instructing people, this is what you need to do. And it deals with our text we will come to later in the sermon when Paul deals with the qualifications of elders. There are already elders in place. They're the cause of the problem. And so Paul is seeking to correct this by spelling out what the qualifications for such elders should be. So he's not writing to a situation as when he writes to Titus and Titus is supposed to appoint elders. Uh, There are elders when Timothy gets to Ephesus. But again, they are part of the problem. What we've done thus far is we've come up with a number of principles as to how we are to keep the faith alive in our generation and pass it on to the next. The first principle is that the church, the people of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, those who are called by God, may have in their midst people who behave badly, who believe wrongly. And in fact, none of us is perfect, so this would include include all of us to a certain degree. The corollary to this is we are God's children because of his grace. As we saw when we began our study, Paul jumps right into it and jumps right into the issue of the problems that he is facing. The second principle, which we saw last week, is that we are not to think in terms of us versus them. We are told in chapter two at the beginning that we are to pray for everyone and that the gospel is to be shared with everyone. You'll notice that Paul urges Timothy to pray for everyone in every way that request prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone. As I said, this makes sense in light of the command that we are to love love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. If we are to love our neighbors then it stands to reason that we would pray for them in every way possible. The third principle we also saw last week is simply put, read the whole story. In verses 8 through 15 of chapter 2, what Paul writes tends to get lost because he talks about women in what many see as a very negative way. The reality is he's still talking about prayer, okay, and he's talking about how we are supposed to behave in public worship. Uh, 
And so this includes prayer without anger or disputing, prayer that is marked by modesty, decency, and propriety, and prayer that is marked by submission. The first one is mentioned with regard to men, the second two with regard to women. But I would suggest to you that they, they apply to all of God's people at all time. Um, I mean, do we think that only men are to pray? Do we really think it is acceptable that men can be immodest or indecent or lack propriety? Or is it only women that are supposed to be modest and decent? I don't think so. Should a man be clothed with good deeds? Absolutely. Should a man learn in quietness and submission? Absolutely. As I said, for this passage particularly, but for the whole letter, we, should, we would do well to understand that Paul is being corrective. Later on, we will see in this book that Paul will seek to correct the behavior of certain women. And I believe these are the women he has in mind as we come to these verses. So the principle is read the whole story. I mentioned this last week, or the last time that I spoke, that if I were to ask most Christians, do you believe the Bible? I think most would say absolutely. And if I were to say to them, do you believe all the Bible, everything written in the Bible? And again, I think I would get a positive response. But if I were to ask, have you read the whole Bible? Then I think many people would not be able to say yes. Things would change. This passage, I think, makes it very clear that we need to read the whole story in order to understand what is being said. Otherwise, we would find ourselves failing to understand what Paul intends, and we will go in an entirely different direction than what is intended. I understand that the Bible is difficult at times, and that in reading it and in studying it, we are to look to the Spirit for wisdom and insight. But we need to read all of it. We need to have read all of Scripture in order to have a better understanding of what is written. Now, I didn't say this the last time I spoke, so let me say it now. Just because we all read the Bible doesn't mean that we will all agree about everything written in the Bible. Okay? Um, so there are people who will disagree with what I'm about to say, what Paul writes about women here. But... What I want and what I think we should grab as a principle as we seek to pass the faith on to the next generation is we would say to them, you need to read the whole story. Begin at Genesis and work your way through to the end. If we are to keep the faith alive and if we are to pass it on to the next generation, we need to read scripture. That which is the revelation of the triune God, we need to read it all. Having said that, how are we to take what Paul writes in this very difficult passage? Look at verses 13, 14, and 15 of chapter 2. We'll get to chapter 3 in a bit. But 1 Timothy 2, 13, 14, and 15. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one, who, the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Now, in these verses, Paul seems to be giving reasons for what he wrote previously. So if you look back at verses 11 and 12, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. So it would seem that what Paul is saying is that women should not teach in the church because Eve was deceived. 
but I think we need to read the whole story. We have one part of a conversation. Paul is seeking to correct a situation. We don't have the details of that situation, but because we have his correction, I think we can sort of reconstruct to figure out what in fact was going on in the Ephesian church. Based on what it writes, it would seem that some women in fact were disrupting public worship. After all, Ephesus was the city of the goddess, Artemis, Diana. And in the gospel, we see that there's neither male nor female. So as men and women come into the body of Christ in Ephesus, there seems that this problem has arisen in which you have women who are disrupting public worship. And it seems one could argue that they have forgotten that, in fact, they are fallen just like men, that they are broken just like every other human being. So what Paul does here is different than what he usually does. Is he do, he, what he usually does, he doesn't quote scripture, but rather he refers to two incidents, uh, two realities in the Old Testament. One from Genesis 2, the other one from Genesis 3. From Genesis 2, Adam was created first, then Eve. The priority of Adam is dealt with in 1 Corinthians 11 as well. And secondly, this is found in chapter 3, Adam was not deceived, the woman was deceived and became a sinner. This would seem to indicate that all women since Eve share the same infirmity or frailty. And therefore, women should not teach. But stop and think a minute. Eve was deceived, right? Adam was not deceived. Adam ate in rebellion against God. His rebellion was deliberate. It was willful. It did not come from outside, from the serpent, if you wish. It came from within. He deliberately chose to disobey God. As one writer put it, what he thought, he did. What he wanted, he grasped. What he desired, he obtained. It was a selfish satisfaction of self. So think a minute. If all men share the same infirmity as Adam, that is that they are willfully rebellious, and all women share the same infirmity as Eve, that is that they are deceivable, if you wish, they can be deceived, who do you want to be teachers in the church? I think I'd like a third option. I mean, is there another group of people who could speak? I mean, you have women who are deceived. You have men who are rebellious. Neither one seem to be ideal candidates to be teachers in the church. What I think Paul is doing in this passage is seeking to remind his readers that both men and women are fallen and they are broken. But in the Ephesian church, particularly women, need to be reminded of the brokenness. This is what is causing problems in the church in Ephesus, the city of the goddess. But then some of the elders are also causing problems. So these, this is men as well. So it isn't just the women who are causing problems. But in this passage, that is what Paul is addressing. Paul seeks to correct improper behavior in Christian worship. And he calls on Christian women to continue in faith, love, holiness, and propriety. This is seen in verse number 15, in childbearing rather than in sexual immorality, indecency, and impropriety. We might add a corollary 
or add another, maybe not a corollary, another principle, and that is everyone is broken. This would go to the first principle that the church is made up of sinners who are saved by God's grace. If you will indulge me, let me read to you from Bob Dylan's song, Everything is Broken. Broken lines, broken strings, broken threads, broken springs, broken idols, broken heads, people sleeping in broken beds. Ain't no use jiving, ain't no use joking, everything is broken. Broken bottles, broken plates, broken switches, broken gates, broken dishes, broken parts, streets are filled with broken hearts. Broken words never meant to be spoken, everything is broken. I think we could add a line, everyone is broken and in need of God's grace. So Paul is not a misogynist. He doesn't hate women. I think women are, in fact, allowed to speak. They are part of public worship. He's dealing with a very specific situation. He's seeking to correct what is going on in the church in Ephesus. Now let's move on to chapter 3. And if you would listen or follow along as I read the first seven verses here of First Timothy chapter 3. Here's a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how will he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In this section, Paul deals with the qualifications of overseers. The word in Greek is episkopoi, which is interchangeable with elders, presbyteroi, in my opinion. It is worth noting, as I said earlier, that in contrast to what he writes in to Titus, where he is supposed to appoint elders, Timothy is in a situation in which there are elders already that have been appointed, and some of them are the ones who are causing the problems. And yet, I find it interesting that both passages are very similar. That is, when Paul lists the qualifications of an elder to someone who is going to appoint them, what are we looking for? Now he's writing to a situation where some of the elders have really gone off the tracks, and he's like, these are the qualifications that we should seek to find in elders. Why write about this? To correct the problem. I hope that as we go along in First Timothy, we'll come to it later, you will see that what Paul writes here is in sharp contrast to the behavior of some of the elders in that church. Now, with regard to this passage, I would point out three things. First of all, he gives the qualifications of elders or overseers, but not the duties. He does not tell us what elders are supposed to do. Because he's not instructing us, he is correcting a problem. Secondly, most of the qualifications, if not all of them, in fact, reflect outward observable behavior. He doesn't speak of their relationship with God. He doesn't even speak of spiritual maturity, even though he says not a recent convert. He's talking about things that other people can see. 
And the third thing is that the qualifications are in line with good behavior in that society. And I would say in most societies, this is the way a good man acts. Because he is giving correction, later on, if you look at chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, it says, Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that the others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. So, you, you are not to entertain an accusation against an elder, but if an elder has done something that is wrong, well, how do we know if it's wrong? Well, now Paul is telling us these are the things that we should expect, the behavior of an elder. The passage begins with a phrase we heard earlier in chapter 1. Here is a trustworthy saying. There, it is in a parenthetical passage in which he speaks of the gospel. Here, he's talking about the overseers. I think what we need to understand is that what Paul is speaking about are, is the position and not people. Let me see if I can explain this. Because Paul is seeking to correct the situation... Some might be tempted to think that they should do away with the position of elder altogether. Since, is that what Paul is saying? Because these elders are problems, let's get rid of them. No, he starts off right at the beginning that if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. I think this has been misread over the years that it's, it's good to want to be an elder. I won't quibble with that, but I don't think that's what he's saying. What he's saying is the position is a good position. It's a noble task. And just because some people have screwed it up, we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. The position of elder, the position of overseer is still a noble task. And therefore, he gives us a list of qualifications if someone is going to, in fact, be an overseer or an elder. What are these qualifications? Well, he gives us a list. And in a sense, where he begins and where he ends are the same place. First of all, they must be above reproach. This has to do with observable behavior. It's a a general term, but it sort of opens the door for what will follow. This should be someone who has a good reputation. Secondly, the husband of one wife. This qualification seems to cause more difficulties than any other, or it seems to raise the most questions. Is Paul saying an elder has to be married? Well, Paul wasn't. Timothy wasn't, as far as we know. So I don't think Paul is saying, if you're going to be an elder, you have to be married. Um, Then people say, well, what if the elder's wife dies, and then he remarries? Did the wife who died, did that, you know, that's the one wife, and so he can't ever be an elder? Um, I think people just sort of go off track. What he's trying to say is that an elder should be a married man who is faithful. He doesn't have to be married, but if he is married, he should be marked by marital fidelity. In that culture, marital infidelity was common, and one would even say assumed. It was assumed that a married man would not be faithful to his wife. Paul is saying, if you are going to be an overseer of God's people, then you are to be marked by faithfulness in marriage. He is to be temperate, and usually we think of this with regard to alcoholic beverages, but that comes up later in the list when he talks about drunkenness. Here I think he's just speaking of the fact that 
of moderation, that we are to be free from excess, passion, or rashness. And the next qualification confirms this, self-controlled. This is the last in the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As we saw in our study there, this term is usually associated with sexual matters. It certainly is an issue we will see as we go through 1 Timothy and Ephesus. The elder must be self-controlled. Then he is to be respectable. And again, this speaks of outward observable behavior. That others who are not Christians, who are not a part of the body, should respect the elder. It shouldn't just be, oh, the members of the church respect him because he's the pastor or he's the elder or whatever. It is people outside the congregation are to respect him as well. He is to be hospitable, but this is to be expected of all believers. I think what Paul is saying is that the elder is not exempted from this. He's to be able to teach, that is to teach the truth as well as to refute error. It's not to be given to drunkenness. And I would point out several things here. Drunkenness was one of the common um, sins, if you wish, of antiquity. The Bible doesn't teach, however, total abstinence. Rather, when the Bible talks about wine or strong drink with regard to drunkenness, it is the things that a person does when he or she is drunk. So, I would argue that to be drunk is not a sin. I don't encourage it, certainly. But what Scripture says is don't get drunk because when you are drunk, you lose control and you may do things that in fact are unlawful and wrong. And so, don't go there. That, you know, that sort of opens the door to these other things. You are not to be drunk, not given to drunkenness. This leads to the next virtue listed not violent, but gentle. Not everyone necessarily is violent when they get drunk, but many are. And so Paul says, don't get drunk, don't be violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. We already saw this in chapter 2 in the matter of praying, that it is to be done without anger or disputing, which to me just sort of paints a whole weird kind of picture. Can you imagine people in church praying angrily or somehow with disputations. And in fact, I, I must confess, I've heard my share of people who aren't actually praying to God, but praying about somebody else in the congregation. You know, it's like, Lord, take care of brother so-and-so, who obviously is doing something he shouldn't be doing. Um, no, not quarrelsome. Seems to have been a real problem in the Ephesian church. If anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree to the sound doctrine of our Lord Jesus Christ and the godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind. This is from chapter 5. In his second letter to uh, Timothy, Paul wrote, Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct, in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. And that they will come 
to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has given who has taken them captive to do his will. The elder must not be quarrelsome even when he is seeking to correct false teaching. Another qualification, he is not to be a lover of money. I just read to you from 1 Timothy chapter 5, but I actually did not finish verse number 5. It says, who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. One should not seek to become an elder because there's money to be made in it. Apparently in certain situations there are, and someone who does this because he loves money is not to be an elder. Paul continues, he must manage his own family well, see that his children obey him with proper respect. And then he tells us why. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? Without making too much of it, the early church met in people's houses and usually in the larger houses uh, so that everyone could fit in. Um, It may in fact be that the head of these houses would become the elders of various congregations. And someone who had a large enough house for a church to meet there must have had certain managerial skills, wife, children, servants, or slaves. And Paul says, listen, he needs to be able to manage that well, because if he can't take care of that, then how can he take care of the people of God? Paul continues, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited, and fall under the same judgment as the devil. Paul uses a metaphor in Greek that means literally no newly planted person. You need someone who has roots, who's been there for a while, who has matured. Otherwise, this opens the door to temptation. Of all the qualifications that Paul has listed, I think this is the one that I, I find being violated the most particularly when it's a celebrity who becomes a Christian. And then suddenly we want to push them into a position of leadership. We want them on TV. We want them to be the one to spread the message. It should not be a recent convert. And then Paul, as I said, comes full circle. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. So he must be above reproach. That's the first in the list. And last, must have a good reputation with outsiders. So what is the principle here? What can we learn? What will help us to keep the faith alive and to pass it on to the next generation? We can work with this some. I'm giving you a rough draft of it here. The qualifications for Christian leadership may be quite different from what we expect. I am struck by what Paul does not include. He doesn't talk about a person's personality, that they be either an extrovert or an introvert. He doesn't speak about personal charisma or speaking ability, that they need to be dynamic. He doesn't speak about personal appearance, physical appearance. See, I suspect if somehow we could go back in time and meet the Apostle Paul, many people would be very, very disappointed by what they would see. Because we don't really take seriously what he wrote in his letters about himself. We have a sort of an Americanized vision of Paul as someone who was quite dynamic, quite charismatic, a great public speaker, just had this, this uh, strong personality, this force of will, and people just did whatever he said. 
But in 1 Corinthians 2, he said, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. I I know for a number of years, I, I used to think that Paul was just being falsely modest. You know, that Paul was trying to say, no, you know, I I, I get stage fright and I I shake a little bit. I tremble. uh, I'm fearful. I have great weakness. Um, No, Paul is writing what is true. And yet he was called to be an apostle. And he, in fact, started the church in Corinth. That's who he's writing to. And this is what he said. And by the way, he says, you know, you know, when I came, you guys know this. I'm not telling you something you don't know. In Galatians 4, he writes to them, As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. In other words, most people, if they saw Paul in his physical infirmity, infirmity, whatever it was, they would have been repulsed by him. They would have been disgusted by him. But the Galatian believers do not treat him with contempt or scorn. And then we are told in 2 Corinthians about his thorn in the flesh. The fourth principle is that Christian leadership among God's people, I think, will look quite differently than what we expect. Because in many ways, when we think of leadership, we are influenced by the culture. And so when it comes to leadership, I think in many ways we are far more American than we are Christian As in the Ephesian church, I think they were far more Ephesian than they were Christian. And Paul writes this passage to seek to correct that. I've mentioned several times in this series that people have left the church or left the faith because certain principles, I think, were not taught to them. I think this is one of them as well. I think that we have forgotten that we need to be corrected when it comes to the matter of leadership in the church. When it comes to choosing leaders in the church, as I said, we tend to be more Christian or more American than Christian. And I say this as someone who I'm American, but I grew up in the Philippines in a different culture. And I saw this time after time in which Missionaries who were Americans would seek out among the local population men that they thought were qualified for leadership, not based on 1 Timothy 3, but based on their own cultural preconceptions. And time after time, this would blow up, that this was not a person who was qualified for Christian leadership. And it turns out they were simply chosen because they better reflected an American view of leadership than they did either a Filipino leader uh, concept of leadership, but certainly a biblical view of leadership. And when that happens, oftentimes we are let down. We are disappointed. 
and we just sort of shake our heads at the leaders that the church has. And we're like, why are they doing the things that they're doing? I find myself somewhat on thin ice here. I don't want necessarily to point fingers, but I am reminded of uh, a certain pastor here in Southern California who was going to sue his church when they sold the building because he wanted his share. He wanted $10 million of the money that the church would get. Um, An elder is not to be a lover of money. So I'm disappointed. And yet, wait a minute, how did this person become a Christian leader in the first place? Was it because of what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 3? Or is it because what we as Americans expect in our leaders? So I said I'm, I'm somewhat taken by what Paul does not include. But I'm also gratified what Paul, that Paul does not include the requirement of perfection. He does not say of an elder that he must perfectly conform to this. That he can never once break any of these things that are listed here. For that I am very grateful. In our congregation, we have two elders, Dan Nobley and myself. And I would commend Dan to you as someone who fits these qualifications. For myself, I am grateful that Paul does not require perfection. And I am very grateful for your patience with me over the years. Um, this is a difficult passage for me to speak on, because in it I find my failings and my imperfections. But we go back to the first principle that we are the people of God because of the grace of God. Let's pray together. Father, if we would take the time to think about it, in many ways we are far more influenced by our culture than we are by Scripture. And I think it really comes out in the issue of leadership in the church. That we find ourselves imagining that leadership should look a particular way or sound a particular way. I thank you for Paul's corrective writing as he seeks to correct the problem there in Ephesus that he tells us this is what leadership should look like. It isn't just here in the congregation but such a person should have a good reputation with outsiders. should not be a violent person, a quarrelsome person, should not be a lover of money, and so on. I thank you that you've given us the Bible. Help us to recognize that we need to read all of it, that we would have a better understanding, that we would not jump to certain conclusions, that women are disqualified because of Eve, 
because then certainly men would be disqualified because of Adam. But it is because of your grace and your grace alone that we are who we are and that we can do what we do. I thank you for Dan and his faithfulness to us in this congregation over the years. Someone who has been an example to each one of us. And I thank you for the patience of this congregation with regard to me. By your grace, may I be the elder, the leader that I should be. I thank you that we could gather today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.